Well, good morning. Uh, it's great, great to be here, and welcome to everybody who's joining us online or if you're live at one of our campuses. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers here and honored to open God's Word today. Speaking of, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And while you're turning over there, I got one last church family update. Last Sunday was Harvest Sunday, and if you're newer to our church, uh, I'm so glad you're with us. Harvest is a day when, as a church, we prayerfully give to fund all of next year's international mission efforts. That's our missionaries and our global outreach partners and our church plants that we support through across the country, as well as some local vision initiatives. All of that for 2023. So if that sounds like a lot, it is. In fact, our goal was over $2.7 million. And so Hills Church family, I want to give you a one-week update. A week later, by God's grace, uh, you have given and pledged over $2.19 million, getting us towards our goal. Praise God. It's just incredible, and we say thank you, thank you, God. And also on behalf of our leaders, uh, we want to extend a huge thank you to our church family. Thank you, Hills Church. Thank you for being generous. Thank you for giving sacrificially. Thank you for praying. Thank you for investing in the growth of God's kingdom all around the world and right here. And to those who just heard that update and you're like, oh man, we were out of town or we forgot or I didn't know about that. Uh, I, I want you to know you haven't missed out on your opportunity to give. And so I'd invite you uh, to join in our harvest offering. And you can do that at thehills.org slash harvest as by God's grace, we head towards reaching and perhaps even exceeding our goal for this year. Having said that, just entering this Thanksgiving week, uh, even on the heels of an update like that, there's so much to be thankful for. And at the same time, we are heading into, and some of us are already in the midst of, uh, the holiday whirlwind. And I was praying and thinking about what kind of word to bring on the cusp of this uh, season that can often be so crazy. And, think, and so I just, I, as I prayed, felt, felt drawn to this passage. It's a, a message that I've given before at other churches, but never actually preached here. And and specifically was thinking about that it's just kind of one of those really simple, simple messages. Because all of us have so much on our mind, on our plate, maybe a long list of to-dos that you're already thinking about for later today or for this week in preparation of, of who's coming or where you're going or what you're cooking. And so we're going to do something really basic, which means first, for those who are newer to our church or maybe newer to faith, I'm so glad that you're with us today or that you're uh, watching or listening online. This is a great message for you, especially if you're exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And for those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time or part of our church for a long time, this is a great word and reminder for every single, every single one of us, I'll be preaching to myself, because none of us outgrow the truth in God's word. Amen? And so having said that, I want to read this passage for us. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is God's word for us today. 
Here in these two verses, there are some things that God wants us to know, some things that are foundational for every Christian that we need to know. And if you're taking notes, we're going to start really simple with this. God wants you to know who you are. God wants you to know who you are. Listen again to these words. Follow God's example, therefore, as, read these words live at our campuses, dearly loved children. God God wants you to know who you are. That is because identity drives activity. Who we believe ourselves to be will affect what we choose to do. So let me give you just a simple framework here to understand identity because because sometimes it's actually a little bit more complicated than than, uh, we sometimes make it sound. Some identities are inherited. That's how I've been told to see myself. We inherit identities from our family, tell us kind of who we are, how we fit in the family, what role we play. We inherit identities from our circle of influence as we grow up and mature into adulthood. And so we kind of learn to see ourselves as that type of kid in the group, that type of person. We can even inherit identities from society that tell us uh, based maybe on the way that we look or what we have or what language we speak or what nation we're from, uh, how we are seen. But there are other identities that are not inherited. They are performative. Performative identities are how I want to be seen by others and how I work to be seen by others. And so it may be that that in your workplace, there's a performative identity that you want to be seen a certain way. She wants to be seen as this kind of professional. He wants to be seen as this kind of leader. And so that's, that's what we kind of work and strive and perform for others to see in us. There's performative identities in all kinds of spaces, maybe in your friend group. You perform to try and fit in. That even happens inside of church. In fact, I would, I would bet that it happened to some of us, even on the way to church. Like I, I'm, I'm picturing and imagining a, a familiar scenario for some of you. It's a, it's a family in the car and there's mom and dad and you're driving and there's kids in the back and you know, it's just, it's just people bickering and fussing. And it's one of those mornings. What, what are you doing? Don't touch me. He's messing with me. I will pull this car over. Everybody be quiet. Hush up. We got to get in the car. Get to the parking space. We're late. And then you walk out and the performative identity shows up. Everybody hush up. Hey, brother, it's great to see you this morning. So glad to be here in the Lord's house gathered together. Oh, man, there are inherited identities, how I've been told to see myself, and performative identities, how I work to be seen by others, But listen close. When God calls us his dearly beloved children, that is not an inherited identity. It's not a performative identity. It is a restorative identity. Not how I'm told to see myself. Not I got to work to earn to be seen this way. God's is, this is who you were always made to be. God offers us a restored identity based on who he knows we were made to be. This is why the Apostle Paul, I believe, beginning in Ephesians 1, verse 5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Some, somebody needs to hear, God did not begrudgingly welcome you into his family. No, God decided in advance because he made you and he knows who you have always been made to be. And that's to be his child. And for some of us who still struggle to believe that, Paul doubles down in chapter 2, speaking specifically in Ephesus to a group of of non-Jews who didn't feel like they were part of the chosen people. And he writes a word to all Christians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Oh, you're, you're part of the family. This is foundational For Christians, you are a beloved son. You are a cherished daughter. This is who God has always intended that you would be, and he has offered you a restored identity, not not based on what others have put on you and not based on how you try and present yourself. The real you restored to be his child. And the thing is, for, for a lot of us, we're like, this is foundational. This is basic. And it's like, I've, I've heard this message. I've sung these song lyrics. Like I, like, I get it. I'm a child of God. But the struggle is, each one of us continue to wrestle with some deep-seated competing identities, don't we? That rear their head at different moments. So I heard a story that, that kind of blew my mind. It's from northeastern Germany. There were some irrigation workers that were flying over this German forest, and they were, they were doing an, an aerial survey. And while they're flying, these, these workers looked down, and they saw something that shocked them. And they documented it with pictures that began to shock all of Germany as the imagery was spread, and, and, and it shocked the world. And from that plain in northeastern Germany, looking down at this forest of evergreen trees, this is what they saw. There's still some debate as to how exactly this happened. How does swastika end up in the forest? But it is believed that Nazi supporters planted these seeds in the 1930s. And guess when this discovery was made? 1992. Some 60 years later, all of a sudden, it's discovered what had been planted long ago. I've read a little bit more about this. And so this is an evergreen forest, but these trees that have changed colors, they're not evergreens. They're called larches. And most of the year, they're the same color as the evergreen. And the reason it took so long to discover is because there's only a limited time of year when they change color. So let's get really practical for a second. Each of us grow up with seeds of our identities, inherited and performative. And let's be real, as we head into the holiday season, maybe not for all of us, but for a lot of us, we are going to find ourselves at the table and sitting down and spending time with people who, whether they intend to or not, can re-trigger those identities. We can end up around some of, some of those old friends or some family we, we only see every so often, and it's like the leaves of our heart can change color and we kind of revert back. What, what does that look like for you? 
Is it that uh, in your day-to-day life, generally, like you're a pretty kind-spoken and gracious person, but man, you, you get back around certain siblings or cousins and, you know, just growing up, the, the way that we did things was like, man, we just, we just cut each other down with our words and it's a biting sarcasm that's kind of funny but really hurts and always somebody crosses the line. Is it, um, is it that you feel pretty respected by your friends and coworkers in your daily life, but man, walk across the, the, the threshold of your parents' home and it's like you carry again the mantle of disappointing child? Is it, is it that there's actually been some pretty public choices and failures that you've had in life? And even though God reminds you, that's not you anymore. And he's doing a restorative work in your life. When you get back around old friends, they still see the old you. There's lots of ways that this can happen. But one of the best things that you and I could do heading into this season is to receive again from God who he says we have always been in his eyes. That you, no matter matter what the people you will sit with on Thursday think about you, remember about you, label you with, put on you, no matter matter what memories haunt you, when you go into whatever those settings are this holiday season, you walk in as a child of God. You walk in as a beloved member of God's household. Oh man, may that be your evergreen and ever true identity over and above anything else. As Paul writes a few verses later, you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. So live your life as children of light. I have a friend who says it like this. God just wants me to be his boy. Oh man, I I need to walk into this week with that reminder. As simple, as foundational as that is, God just wants you to be his girl. God just wants you to be his boy. To live from your true identity because he's the one who made you. He knows who you are intended to be and he's worked to restore you so you can live that way. And in our in our hearts, we go, oh, man, this is, this is who I want to be. This is how I want to live. But how do I do that? Well, and that's why we got more to go in this message, because we don't just need to know who we are. You need to know who you follow. You need to know who you follow. As we heard in this passage, Paul writes, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Here's a different translation of that verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This uh, word in in the Greek, imitators, it's also where we get the roots for for, uh, mimicking, mimicry. And uh, for fun, I just looked up the word imitation in the dictionary. And for younger listeners, I don't mean dictionary.com. I mean dictionary. There were these books. They had this list of words with the meanings of these words. And if you're young enough that you're less familiar with books, it's like the internet, but on paper. So 
I looked up imitation. Here's the definition of imitation. Imitation is the action of using someone or something as a model. Imitation, another definition, is a thing intended to simulate or copy someone or something else. So let me say something very obvious. You can only imitate someone you have observed. There can be no imitation without some level of personal information. You cannot become an understudy without some level of understanding. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to this church, has this prayer in chapter 1. He prays, saying, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Oh, man, we we need wisdom for a lot of different things. Some of us are thinking about some of the people we're going to be around, and we're going, God, I need wisdom. We're thinking about the schedule we've got to manage. God, I need wisdom. Some of us are heading towards the end of the year and trying to balance the budget. God, I need wisdom. But Paul's prayer is, man, you, you need wisdom so that you can know who your dad really is. If we're God's kids, we're trying to be like our dad. But if our God is our heavenly father, God's the one who made the world. Isn't God transcendent and beyond and all powerful and all knowing? It doesn't sound like he's very like me. How can I become like someone who is all knowing and all powerful when I am limited in my knowledge and in my power? If the quandary is, how do I become an imitator of someone it doesn't sound like I'm like? Here's good news. This God, who you don't think you're like, became like you so you could know what that looks like. Oh, look look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For the person who, who's still exploring faith, I, let me just speak to you for a second. We believe, Christians around the world believe, God not only made the world and is our heavenly Father, but in mercy and grace, God became like us and lived wrapped in flesh, fully God and fully man. And we believe that that person was Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus is more than just a historical figure, although scholars across the board agree he's a real historical figure. We believe Jesus is more than just a wise teacher, although many world religions would call Jesus a wise teacher. Christians believe he's more than a historical figure. He's more than a wise teacher. Jesus Christ, we believe, was God in the flesh. And if we want to know what love looks like, we look at him. If we want to know what our father is like, we look at his son. It's one of the reasons that God has given us his living word, so that we could know the word made flesh. There's these these four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. But these are records that help us get to know Jesus. And and man, I'm glad that you're listening to, to teaching from God's word right now. That is one way to get to know God better through, through uh, teaching from God's word. But I got to tell you, if, if your spiritual diet is limited to I listen to sermons, then, then just to compare that for a second to Thursday's Thanksgiving meal, 
only having sermons as a way to get to know God is like showing up at Thanksgiving and walking down the buffet and all you walk away with is green bean casserole. Like, I, it's good for you. And, 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 it, and it's part of what, what, what should be on your plate, perhaps. But you know what? There's so much more. The invitation from the God who wants you to know who you are and wants you to know him is that you would encounter him each day. And through, through the living word, there's an opportunity for you to know more about what Jesus looks like, what his love looks like. And through friendships and relationships that extend beyond just a Sunday gathering, but getting around people who have been following Jesus for longer than you, man, it's been one of the best gifts in my life to spend time with and see the life of and ask questions and talk with people who have been following Jesus longer because the way of love is being embedded in their being. And so if you want to know what love looks like, when you look at Jesus, love took Jesus not just to the crowds where he would speak and serve and care. Love took Jesus to the cross. And on the cross, followers of Jesus believe he became, Paul's language is our sacrifice, our offering to God. Because we've rejected Jesus in so many different ways. Rejected God. And yet to become, to be restored as dearly beloved children, God was willing to die for us. That's the way of love, self-giving sacrifice. So if, if, if you want to know why, why do these two things matter together, know who you are and know who you follow, let me just show you this little simple equation. Because when you, who you are plus who you follow equals how you live. Who you are, who you believe yourself to be, plus who you follow, who you allow to influence you or point the way forward for you will result in your way of life. And if for a second you're going, yeah, I, I don't know how I would have described my identity and I'm not exactly sure, uh, I don't think of myself as always following people, then maybe, maybe reverse engineer that equation for a second. Look at how you live Look at how you spend your time. Look at what you value. Look at what you invest in. Look at your relationships. And ask yourself, is this the life of someone who knows they are a child of God and who is allowing Jesus to be the one setting their way of life? Every time that I ask myself that question, every time I reverse engineer and start with how I live, I feel a sense of conviction because I realize there are often lesser identities I'm tempted to live in again and that there are values and people who influence where I point my heart's attention. And in those moments, we can start to feel stuck. Let me help you think about it like this. So I... <laughs> I've got uh, two kids, and my, my oldest is about to turn six later this month. And so I've been getting nostalgic as a dad. 
and thinking about my son, Finn. Uh, about five years ago, he was at this place where he was learning to crawl. And I actually uh, uh, had a moment that, that I shared with our whole church about five years ago. And I, I got nostalgic and I was like, I just want to show this again uh, because, because it's actually a, a, a great way to, to help us understand what's happening here in Ephesians 5. So my son Finn was at the stage where he'd crawl. Here's video proof of concept. He was at the stage where you could set him down anywhere and he would just start crawling to you. Put him on hardwood, he'd crawl to you. Put him on carpet, he'd crawl to you. Take him outside, the kid would crawl straight to you. Put him on tile in the kitchen, he'd crawl to you. But one day we set him on grass. He might as well have been on an alien planet, this poor kid. He had no idea what to do. This is minutes of our life cut down to only a few seconds because we were doubled over laughing. <laughs> Finally, my wife and I crouched down. We're like, come on, buddy, here we go. And at long last, he leans forward and slowly starts to crawl in the grass. Oh, here's why I show you that. Two reasons. Number one, it is objectively adorable. <laughs> Number two... Because for me, it's just been such a great picture of trying to walk by faith in the way of love. There are some parts of your faith life you can move in. Oh man, maybe it's worship and, and, and you just, you can open your heart to God and that's just natural for you. You can move in that. Maybe, maybe God's made, made you with a servant's heart. And when you see people in need or when you see, oh, man, the dishes are piling up or, or the chairs are being put away, you just jump in. You just can't help it. It's how you are. You move in Christ-like service. Maybe you're an encourager and you, you, you can't help but call out the best in other people and, and, and show them as, as God-given gifts in them. All of us have things we can naturally move in for how we're wired. But all of us have places in our walk of faith that put us on the grass. For the Ephesian church, chapters four and five hit a range of different things. I'd encourage you later this week just to read those chapters. Because Paul's basically in the first three chapters been saying, here's who you are and here's who, you, who you're following, so this is what you're supposed to do. And he just names some things that put that church on the grass. I'll give you a couple examples in their list. He, he, he talks about how we treat others and even how we're willing to forgive other people as Christ forgave us, which, man, that can be a sitting on the grass moment. For some of us, based on, well, even if we think about some of the people we may be around during this holiday season, based on the way they treat us, based on those passive aggressive comments, based on the way they try and cut us down or the things that they've done or said we can't unhear or can't forget, it is a sitting on the grass moment to go, Jesus told us to forgive. One disciple asked, how many times? And Jesus said, 70 times seven, which is a Jewish way of saying, stop counting. And man, I don't want to minimize the hurt that has been done, but it's a sitting on the grass moment to go, Jesus, help me See that forgiveness is not about excusing what somebody has done to me. It is about displaying what you did for me. Forgive others, Paul says, as God in Christ forgave you. It's a sitting on the grass moment when, um, when Paul, he brings, up, he brings up greed. And sometimes in the economy of this world, we, we kind of decide how fulfilled we're going to be 
how filled up we'll be by how much we store up. And we'll base what we're worth by what we earn. And it's a sitting on the grass moment to realize, no, actually, God doesn't base my identity on my salary or my Christmas bonus or if I can get all the gifts that are on the list for the kids. No, God places my worth based on what Jesus did for me on the cross. And it's a sitting on the grass moment sometimes to get to the offering and go, oh, hold on, I, I, I know I'm here to celebrate what God has, has given me and how he's provided for me and how he's poured out love and grace on me, but I didn't realize God was reaching for my wallet. It's a sitting on the grass moment to realize everything I have is a gift from God, including my finances. And when I give, I'm not trying to get anything back from God. I'm investing in his kingdom and I am showing my father, I trust you more than I trust what you've given me. There's another one Paul mentions, sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneo. It's kind of this big general blanket term, obviously from which we derive the word pornography. But the word isn't just about what you look at it. As, as, best, as best I can understand it, this general word was Paul's way of saying anything that would happen sexually outside the context of a committed covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And there's a lot of differences between ancient Ephesus and our modern world. But one similarity is that in both settings, the prevailing narrative is, I mean, what you do with your body, not that big of a deal. And so if it's my body, I can do what I want with who I want or watch whatever I want, whenever I want. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, nobody better tell me otherwise. Oh, in church, it's a sitting on the grass moment to realize if I'm walking in the way of love and I belong to my father as his precious child, he is Lord over every part of my life. And he's going to speak into every part of my life. It's a sitting on the grass moment to hear elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus on the cross. Therefore, Paul says, honor God with your bodies. Man, sex is God's idea. And yet it's a sitting on the grass moment to say, Lord, if you have given this gift for human flourishing, but you've asked us to steward it in a covenant marriage, help me, God, to trust you even if I don't fully understand Help me, God, to follow you more than I follow my feelings or my desires. And there's all kinds of moments like this that can put us on the grass. And, and when we see these kind of lists in the New Testament, like in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians, here's part of what happens. It's the tone right now of, of how many of us feel. This, this sense of conviction that can corrode into guilt and shame. And what I want you to remember is God has zero desire for us to live in condemnation and shame. Think back to my son on the grass. Let me ask you an absurd question. If he had not crawled that day, would I still love him 
the same? I would never love him any less. He's my child. And for all the places where you struggle to obey, where you sin and feel guilty, where you fall back into old patterns or old identities, Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross for you because God wanted to redeem and restore you, which means every time that you sin or fail or mess up, you are meeting more of the grace of God poured over his beloved child. You can't outsin his grace and his mercy. Oh, beloved child, just know God loves you just the way you are. He just loves you too much to leave you that way. And he invites us into life with him as we were meant to live. And yet still for some of us, there's this sense of like, oh, man, I've tried. Like, I, I want to believe that, but I've tried. I've tried quitting. I've tried changing. I, I've tried doing something different. I just, I cannot do it. And you know what? I believe you. If you've been doing it in your own strength and power, I believe you because I've been there too. We can't. But that's why Paul mentions something else we need to know. We don't just need to know who we are. You don't just need to know who you follow. You need to know who is with you. This is laced throughout the New Testament and right here in Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul writes, When you believed, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. In Ephesians 3, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. In Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul's message over and over is there is an inner presence and power that is not of yourself. It's actually from the same God who tells you who you are and who shows you how to live. That same God empowers you to walk in obedience and new life every day. It's an interesting comparison Paul makes in Ephesians 5. Don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not exactly a one-to-one, -one, but let's just play that out for just a second. It's the holidays. Let's get real, y'all. You may or may not end up around somebody who's had one too many. And what do we say about somebody who's drunk? They are under the influence. Oh, and under the influence of a substance, people do things they wouldn't normally do. People say things they may not normally say. People act in ways and it becomes apparent they are under some kind of influence. And it may be that Paul is saying, hey, we as children of God do not want to operate under the influence of any lesser, lower case S spirit. But we are invited to be under the influence of God's Holy Spirit that we might speak in life-giving, gracious ways we don't normally speak. We might act in loving and sacrificial ways we don't normally act. We might behave in ways that cause others to see someone is influencing you. And it's God's Spirit present with you. So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Listen to the rest of this passage. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
spirit-filled people overflow with thanks and praise. Thanks and praise. I, I was thinking about something we did several years ago. Uh, our senior teaching minister, Rick uh, Atchley, and his wife, Jamie, they opened up their home. And the Atchleys invited over uh, elders from, from uh, our church and then a couple of ministers. And we just had some, uh, had some dessert, some pumpkin pie, and spent some time together. And at one point, we circled up, and Rick said, all right, we're going to go around this circle, and everybody's going to say one thing about our church. But there's only one rule. You're only allowed to say something you are thankful for. We are not a perfect church, I remember Rick saying. There's things we could talk about that we need to improve in or that we struggle with or that we want to get better at. But tonight, we're just going to name things we're thankful for with our church family. We started going around the room and there were just all these beautiful stories and testimonies of what God has done in and among this church body. People restored to their true identity, marriages healed, people buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new life. All kinds of stories, beautiful stories of the way of love lived out right here. Offered up as thanksgiving. And church, I left that night so full and it wasn't from pie. And this week, this season, there is an opportunity, an invitation from the Lord to be filled with his spirit afresh as we name what we're thankful for, as we speak in life-giving and gracious ways to those around us. And as we walk into whatever your Thursday looks like, as children of God. I just want to finish with Paul's words at the end of Ephesians 6. This is how he finishes the whole letter. Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, we just want to say thank you. We thank you for what you have done, for all that you have provided, for all you are doing and have promised to do. And we praise you for who you are. Perfect, sinless, full of light that you shine into our hearts. I bless my brothers and sisters right now in Jesus' name to know who they are as restored and redeemed beloved children who belong to our Heavenly Father. I bless them in the name of Jesus to know who they follow and to experience the power and presence of who is with them. God's very spirit, that they might walk in the way of love in the days ahead. And I pray for all those who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. May they hear today's message as an invitation to find the Savior who loves them so much he died for them. 
and to receive the restored identity God has always wanted for them. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.